Some of you may know the lyrics to one of the more famous songs by a very uh, non-famous band, Spoon. And it goes like this. I think it's talking about the prophets. Uh, You've got no time for the messenger. Got no regard for the thing that you don't understand. You've got no fear of the underdog. And that's why you will not survive. You see, we all love a good underdog story in theory. Uh, But we do not like it so much uh, in practice. We like it on paper, but not in real life. And what I mean by that is we all want to believe that, you know, the humble will be exalted and to give is better than to receive. But when it comes down to it, we look around and it seems to be that it's the proud and the powerful and the wealthy and the deceitful that seem to get their way in this world. And it sure seems it feels pretty good to receive Uh, and maybe a little bit better than giving uh, in our own hearts. Well, what could make this world dizzy with its own self-love and its own self-involvement and its own self-importance and self-indulgence? What could make a world like this change into something better than it is currently? I mean, what would it take to fix the present state of things? I mean, what do we need? Well, we have a messenger this morning by the name of Micah, and he says what we need is an underdog. And the question is, will we believe him? And do we believe that's really the way of God in the world? And so let us begin this morning as we look at Micah chapter 5 with betting on the great. Betting on the great. You see, Micah's text this morning takes us to a point in history uh, that is a little bit uh, further back than we've been considering Assyria is still the main player on the world stage, the most powerful nation in the world. Uh, She has already uh, given a lot of problems to the ten tribes to the north, the nation of Israel. Uh, And during that time, you know, the Israelites to the north uh, joined with Syria, and they were thinking if we could just get a coalition of people together, we might be able to, uh, you know, ward off Assyria from coming in and taking our things Uh, which didn't work out too well. But during that time, Judah decided that they would take a different tact. Uh, King Ahaz, a descendant of David, decided, you know, if you can't beat the bully, uh, then bribe the bully. And so they sent as much as they could afford to the king of Assyria and basically said, please don't hurt us. Uh, And that worked for a little while. Uh, Until we come into our text this morning where things seem to have changed. You see, while that worked under the uh, leadership of Ahaz, this bribe, Assyria was, you know, going about their business conquering the world, and they were busy fighting Babylon and taking some of their stuff. And so Hezekiah decided, like, you know, that wasn't the most faithful thing for us to do, to, you know, team up with with a pagan nation, and we should probably start cleaning house a little bit. And so he thought, they're busy, they won't mind if we just stop paying tribute and kind of get our own affairs in order. Uh... And that uh, estimation by Hezekiah was uh, severely deficient. Uh, Once Assyria under Sennacherib uh, was done battling with Babylon, they came marching right back toward Judah and decided they were going to remind them that they owed them some things. You don't just get to, you know, uh, swat off the government uh, that's ruling the world and say that you don't want to deal with them anymore without some sort of consequences. And that's exactly where we are in this text. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 11, it begins with this phrase, and now. And what that means for Micah is, 
This is happening right now in his own historical situation. As he is, prophet, uh, as he is um, uh, a prophet over the nation, he's telling them things that are going to occur in the immediate future. And what he says, if you look at our text this morning, is that this present, uh, that this distress that he's prophesying is going to be current. And so he says, gather your troops, O daughter of troops. And what he's talking about there in that phrase is he's looking at Jerusalem, who's pretty much the only city left that Assyria hasn't conquered. You see, Assyria started marching in Judah and one by one just uh, began to take, you know, town and county, realizing that, you know, what, what could Judah do to muster a defense against the greatest army in the world? And now the only city left is the capital city, the city of the great king. And Micah turns to her and says, you better get your troops ready because it's coming. Assyria's at the door and it's time for you to steal yourselves and get ready for the battle that's ahead. And it's interesting, he says, you know, gather your troops, O daughter of troops. This part of the nation that used to be called the daughter of Zion and is now being called a daughter who is under attack or under siege. You know, her identity has changed. And why is she under the siege? Well, uh, on paper, it's because she started, you know, uh, playing fast and loose with the rule of Assyria. But according to God, that Assyria has come to take them out because they were unfaithful to him. Because instead of counting on God to protect them from their enemies, they went and bribed a more powerful nation, thinking, if you bet on the strong, then you will win. And now that is coming back, unfortunately to haunt them. You'll notice Jerusalem and her king are about to be humiliated in the process. It says, strike with a rod the judge of Israel. You know, if you read the coronation texts of Scripture, if you read the great royal psalms, uh, Psalm 2 and so forth, this rod is this, uh, you know, regal, uh, you know, um, uh, staff that the king is supposed to use in Israel to rule over all the other nations. That it's his way of saying that we are dominant over you. And in this picture, Assyria comes, you know, it's like he's taking his own uh, rod and he's just smacking him in the face with it. You know how the movies go when, you know, the enemy's too great and like, he's beating you with your own hand, like a big brother, where he takes your own hand and starts slapping you with it. And you realize, like, not only is this humiliating, I have no power to stop the humiliation. Well, that's what's going on in this text. This is, you know, the Braveheart scene where William Wallace is finally lost and all hope is gone and all you can do is sit back and watch him be tortured at the will of a more powerful government. And so the king of Judah, Hezekiah himself, David's offspring, is being smacked around by the Assyrian king and there's nothing anyone can do to stop it. All they, have to do, all they can do is sit there and suffer the indignity of being taken over by a great nation. There's nothing God's people can do. I mean, the enemy is just too great, too large for her to stay his hand. I mean, what could she do to a nation like Assyria? Can you imagine Jerusalem? Not, not even the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, but now we're just down to one city, what can they do to the most powerful army on earth? It's like, you know, having a small child go out to fight, you know, uh, someone who's completely trained in warfare. This is like the ultimate 
uh, you know, bully story, and there's no, you know, there's no hope in sight. When we look at the powers of this age, when we look outside and we think, you know, look at all these problems that are on the forefront of our life and how we're being dominated in certain ways, and the question is, well, what can we do to stop it? We often feel as overwhelmed as Judah feels in this particular text. But of course, this text, the story doesn't end in humiliation. In just five short verses, by the time you get to this, uh, the end of this text, you have a complete reversal of fortunes. And so the, one thing, the next thing I want us to see is that the great become little. Notice what it says in verse 5, The Assyrians, when they invade your land and march through your fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, and we will rule the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn sword, and he will deliver us from the Assyrians." when they invade our land and march across our borders. Assyria, this larger-than-life bully in verse 1, is being ridiculed in verses 5 and 6. You know, they're basically drawing a line in the dirt, and they're saying, like, I dare you, go ahead, step over it, and see what happens. He says, when Assyria crosses our border, that's going to be our cue. We're not only going to drive them from our land, we're going to march all the way with our army to their land until we put them under complete subjugation. They will be under our sword and under our rulership, that this king who is to come uh, will, will, will dominate them in that fashion. Small Judah, you know, so weak and helpless, experiences such a reversal in Micah's text that she is now somehow mocking and taunting her enemies. The mighty look upon her, and it says they fear, they tremble when they see her. I mean, it's good news, isn't it? It's glorious to hear the Christmas story, once again. I mean, did you hear it? Did you know that's what this is? I mean, this is a Christmas text. And this is the Christmas story. And maybe we don't hear it. It's awful hard for us to hear through uh, our particular cultural setting and our ears the way that we have really domesticated the Christmas story. Even many of our greatest Christmas songs don't often speak of making war, but, you know, we speak about babies who don't even cry in mangers, uh, miraculously. Uh, we speak about mother's love for their tender young, and, you know, we sing a lot about livestock and all sorts of wintry weather. Uh, but the idea of speaking of warfare, where God comes and mocks the nations that have mocked Him and dominates them through His people, is not usually part of how we celebrate Christmas. On rare occasion do we sing a war song where we look out at our enemies, we look out at the world, and we double dare them to start something with us. But that is what Christmas is about. That's what this text is about. And how do we know? Well, we know because how we get to this reversal, and you'll see that in our final point. Don't get too excited. Uh, the little become great. After telling Jerusalem... You know, put on your big boy pants, it's going to get real bad for you here real soon. You and your king are about to be humiliated. You'll notice in verse 2 that the language of reversal, verse 2, but, you know, and that small word that means so much when it's uttered at the right time. You know how it is, you know. Honey, you really frustrated me today how, you know, you left all your stuff on the counter and I asked if you could do that and you didn't do it. But anyway, I don't want to be mad. I just, let's just have a good night. That's a great word, right? The, the starts out terrible, ends well. 
And that's what's happening in this text. He says, you know, you guys better get ready because they're about to gather around your city. And he says, but Bethlehem, you little insignificant city, from you something's going to happen. That language of reversal comes and tells us something in the situation is changing. From this grim prospect comes a wonderful promise. Notice, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. If you were setting up a story of reversal, and if you were, you know, uh, an Israelite here, uh, you know, know, a resident of Judah, and you're waiting for good news, and he says, look, it's going to get bad, but don't worry, something's coming from, you would expect to hear, Jerusalem. (laughs) Something's coming from somewhere that matters. What you wouldn't expect was to hear the words, Bethlehem. It's not a big enough place. It's not an important enough place to do anything or to affect anything that would change their current scenario. It's not the royal city. It's not the place that you normally speak of or great people are found. You know, like me saying, you know, the greatest president of the United States is going to come from, from San Jacinto. Uh, it's just not something that would normally come to mind. It would take a little bit of convincing that that was going to happen. It's a lot like our own town. When you go out of state and you tell people you're from Temecula, what do you have to do? You have to start telling them about real cities that are nearby. Like, well, it's like, uh, you know where San Diego is? We're a little north of them. You know where Los Angeles? You know, it's just too insignificant to be known in the frontal lobe of everybody. And it's the same here with Bethlehem. He says, you're too insignificant to even be named among the clans of Judah. And so when they're gathering for war and they're listing out the clans or they're doing the census, Bethlehem's so small they don't even bother counting them. They just say, you don't have enough men for us to consider about how many men we're going to get fighting from your town or how many people we would need to even tax you. Uh, You're just too small in some sense for even to be counted among the places of Israel. It's an out-of-the-way backwater. And that insignificance is what we will see become significant in this text. Now, in that sense, it is. It's an insignificant, no-name place. And yet, there is something about it that lingers in the memory of Israel. That from this little place that didn't matter came the greatest king that Israel had ever known, King David. And King David rose to power, of course, in the midst of an unrighteous king's rule. After Israel had been let down by the unrighteousness of their former leader, God goes to Bethlehem and he says, I'm going to anoint a new king. And not only does he go to this town that's too little, he starts going through all the brothers, of, uh, all the sons of Jesse, all of David's brothers, and he goes from the eldest all the way down, and he says, hey, I'm looking for someone else. Do you have any more sons? And even his father says, well, I have one more, but you don't need to talk to him. We... We know it's not going to be. He's not the one you're looking for. He's just too young, too little. I mean, when they get called out to war against the Philistines, where Goliath is taunting the nations, all the brothers are there. Save David. He is left home to tend the sheep because he's too small, too insignificant. And even when he finally does step up to fight Goliath, and he puts on Saul's armor, he's dwarfed as he wears them. Long ago... God went to a small, out-of-the-way place to choose a weak one among the brothers in Judah in order to set Israel free from the failures of her poor king. 
And Micah's saying, God's going to do it again. And this one's going to stand like a shepherd. And again, this text just drips with Davidic language. Yes, that language of shepherd is used in the ancient Near East to speak of rulers, to speak of kings, because, you know, what do shepherds do? Shepherds protect and shepherds feed. Uh, and yet, most especially and most significantly, the most famous king in all of Israel's history was a shepherd boy named David. And so that language, again, he's trying to stir up in the collective memory of the reader, remember David, remember the good days when we had a warrior king who would fight for us. Even though he was small and he was insignificant, he stood against even a giant that was going to fight us. And in defeating him, defeated the great nation that he represented, the nation of the Philistines. This one who killed a lion and a bear, could he not also kill the enemies that were in front of us. Micah's telling us, God is going to do that again. So Judah, you're going to be defeated. Jerusalem, you're going to be surrounded. But don't worry, out of Bethlehem is going to come a Savior. The reversal, as they're sitting there under this foreign oppression... Micah begins to use every image of goodness and hope from the past to try to lift their sagging heads and renew their spirits. I mean, their lot at present so weak and hopeless, so laughable to the mighty. He says it's going to be reversed, but it's going to be reversed in the most unthinkable way, not the way that you would devise, not in the, uh, the sort of strength that you would try to muster. Instead, it will be reversed by a birth of a child in Bethlehem. And all the world would know the glory of this king. And they would all be under his headship. And he, like David, would be a slayer of giants. I mean, Merry Christmas. That, that is what Christmas is about. And you know that because of the way this text comes up in the New Testament. This isn't just us doing, you know, a, a, you know a interesting biblical theology that has no grounding in the text, but when Christ is born and an unrighteous king in Israel, once again leading the people astray and fearful of foreign leaders that are above them, the Roman government, hears that a king has been born and Beth, uh, a king has been born, he asks the wise men as they're looking for this king, what do the scriptures say? Where would we go look for this king? And the wise men do what? They quote Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. But it's interesting they change the words, or they quote it differently than we would expect to hear it. In Micah, it says, Bethlehem, you are too little to be named. But in Matthew, it reads, Bethlehem is by no means least. The exact opposite. <laughs> it says, you're too little. And then in Matthew, he says, oh, you're not the least, you know, implying you're the greatest or one of the greatest. Well, it sounds like, again, the Scriptures has either been misinterpreted or misapplied or it's just written down wrongly. But it's not. It was too little. It was small and insignificant. But because of the one who would be born there, it becomes great even though it is so weak and so small. It's not that Bethlehem becomes great, but Bethlehem has a great one born in it that now makes her great. As one wrote long, long ago, 
O Bethlehem, thou art little, but now made great by the Lord. He hath made thee great, who being great was made little in thee. He says, you know why you became great? Because the great one, even God himself, deigned to be born in your midst. What was once little and insignificant becomes worthy and great, all because of the king who came to her. And the one that came to her became weak for their sakes. So they, too weak to defeat their enemies, would be made strong enough to be victorious. I mean, think of that. So strong has Christ made his people that sin and the devil and even death itself has no claim on them any longer because he is our peace. You see, God has never stopped working this way. He always, if you will, works through the underdog. I mean, look out at the world and consider all that's overwhelming you. All that you fear, all that you ask yourself. I mean, what is the answer? How can it be fixed? And most of the time, we run to things like power and solutions You know, if we just get the right party in office or get a better education or a better job or better connections or live in a better state. And God comes to us and says, I've never worked that way. That has never been the way I've gained victory in the world. He used a little town and a little baby to call foolish and weak and lowly people into his kingdom and to subvert all the powers of the ages. To create a kingdom so great that it will eventually dominate the whole of the creation. You think that sounds maybe too good to be true or ridiculous, maybe even a little bit foolish, impossible? Well, just as a thought experiment, I mean, how is it that the whole world will stop on December 25th and celebrate because of this baby that Micah talks about? I mean, they may not believe, and they often don't, and worse, they often mock the actual story that the day is based on, but it won't stop them from pausing to celebrate the fact that this child, this one specific child, came into the world, the child that they deny. I mean, isn't it amazing that Christmas still dominates the cultural landscape, even in a post-Christian culture? All because there's this faint memory of a child that was born and gifted to Bethlehem in the midst of the powers that be. The meaning may be lost, but the celebration still persists because that king still persists. As Chesterton wrote, the great majority of people will go on observing forms that cannot be explained. They will keep Christmas Day with Christmas gifts and Christmas benedictions, and they will continue to do it. And someday, suddenly, they will wake up and discover why. You'll notice he wins. Christ wins, but he wins in ways that we do not expect. He wins by losing. He destroys death by dying. He gains victory by being defeated. And he continues to win that way this very day. I mean, he continues to gain his victory over the world through little churches, and little people in little out-of-the-way towns 
through words preached and ordinary water poured out and bread and wine and even wine that's not so great passed around to a congregation and one by one God claims his victory over men and women, boys and girls, all the world over as he dominates through his lordship even now until one day there will be a nation so great that no one can count of every tribe and tongue and kindred all the world over. This is God's way. As one author writes, Christ has created a heavenly host. And a host means army. To accomplish his purpose of transforming the world. And that army does not consist of only sharp, young, single men and women. This army includes mentally retarded people, feeble old people, hurt people, suicidal people, Weak people, sinful people, people with minds warped by error, and much, much more. To the human eye, this army is not much to look at. It is, however, the only army God has ever called into being. All the rest are only substitutes and counterfeits. And in Advent, we are called back to look that reality right in the face. To stare our enemies down. And to have the courage to look at that baby in the manger and believe. And believe that from a little town in Bethlehem, God would bring forth a ruler that not only makes that city great, this backwards town that had no significance, that now becomes significant, but he makes all of those great who put their faith in him. And so too with us, though we are weak and foolish and lowly, that's how the Bible describes each and every one of you. Not many of us are wise or noble, but instead God calls the foolish and the weak and the lowly of the earth. Through faith in this one, we become so much more than we are. Strong and wise and significant and righteous. Whether we can see it or not, may God give us the eyes of faith to see it this morning as we look to Christ our King. Let us pray.